Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Tim Besley. I'm going to be chairing this evening's uh, event on <coughs> radical uncertainty, decision-making for an, unknow an unknowable future. Uh, I'll uh, introduce our, our two speakers in a moment. There's a, a few small housekeeping issues to start with. The first one is to, uh, to remind you uh, that this is an event organized by LSE Ideas. Uh, it's being recorded. Uh, and uh, um, so that means during the Q&A, anyone who wants to ask a question, please identify yourself. Um, afterwards, there's going to be a reception uh, and uh, also a book signing, and there'll be an opportunity for you to give feedback on the event. There'll be feedback forms available, and I encourage you uh, to, to fill them in. Uh, now, of course, uh, this event this evening does take place in the time of uncertainty, great uncertainty, uh, and what could be more appropriate, therefore, than be discussing uh, these issues. Um, but among the gloom, anguish, and anxiety that that's creating, I can offer you one thing with certainty, and that's that tonight's event will be extremely uh, interesting and, and raise a lot of very important issues. And how do I know that? I know that for two main reasons. One, that I've already read a draft of uh, John and Mervyn's book, uh, but also uh, that I, uh, uh, um, we have these two very, very uh, interesting speakers who are going to address uh, the issues. Um, uh, they don't need really much in the way of introduction, I know, um, but on my immediate left is John Kay, uh, who's a fellow of St. John's College, Oxford, and has held a, a range of academic appointments, uh, been the director of the IFS uh, and uh, an, an FT columnist for, for many years. Um, uh, both uh, with a, an enormous reputation in academia and in the world of, of policy and communication. And then uh, on the end of, of, is, is Mervyn King, uh, again, who has uh, had an enormously distinguished career in academia, um, both uh, including being a professor in the economics department here at the LSE, both before he went to the Bank of England and afterwards. Um, but, of course, he's uh, perhaps best known for that period of uh, service to the, to the nation, if you like, at the Bank of England, uh, where he was governor between uh, 2003 and 2013. And he's currently a professor of, of economics and law at New York, as well as, as combining that with a position of school professor here at the LSE. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to conduct this for the first uh, uh, segment as a conversation. I'm going to ask uh, John and and Mervyn some questions about the, 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 the book that this is all based on, and then we'll have an opportunity later to throw it open for uh, questions from the floor. But let me turn first to, to John, and, and perhaps you can tell us, John, why you wrote this book. Well, I think it... Uh, well, maybe Mervyn is going to be for the book. Yeah. 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 Okay. Because Mervyn wrote in The End of Alchemy about radical uncertainty right. and really put this phrase on the table. Well, Tim, thank you, and good evening, everyone. I'm very pleased that you've all chosen to come here on an evening when coronavirus would give you an excuse to do many things other than come. And as we'll discuss later on this evening, coronavirus is actually a wonderful example of radical uncertainty. John will talk about that in a minute. But what I want to do is to say something about why we wrote this book. John and I wrote another book a long time ago, over 40 years ago, on the British tax system. And then our careers, as Tim explained, went in rather different directions. John had a much more interesting career than I did. He did very many different things. I was in academic life and then at the Bank of England. And just before I left the bank, there was a conference. 
and we met at the conference and we talked about our reactions to the financial crisis and what we thought were the driving intellectual forces behind it and what we needed to understand in order perhaps to take measures to prevent it happening again. And we discovered that quite independently we had come to the view that radical uncertainty was fundamental to thinking about either the financial crisis or indeed broader issues such as innovation, enterprise in business and thinking about uncertainty more generally. That the way the economics profession had tried to tame uncertainty was to pretend that you could always describe it in terms of probabilistic reasoning where people could attach probabilities to every conceivable event then they'd go out and maximize their expected utility and in this way you would have a solution to a well-defined problem and this seemed to sort of drain to our from our point of view this drained the real import of uncertainty uncertainty was much more significant than that and it couldn't just be converted into something else that you could quantify price and trade so that begs the question what do we mean in our book by radical uncertainty john i think mervyn you talk about our both um going out of the academic world somewhat and experiencing what one might call the real world a bit and i think one of the things we both learned in different ways from that was as academic academic economists people are maximizing things they're maximizing utility they're maximizing profits they're maximizing something or other but actually people mostly aren't actually maximizing anything and they aren't maximizing anything because they don't have the information to maximize anything they can't do it in advance and they wouldn't know after the event whether they had done it or not and that's a clue that uncertainty plays a big element in understanding real world behavior and moving beyond some of the narrower frameworks of some economic models but i think it's a good way to start the discussion tim by talking a little bit about the history of all of this we our starting point is that in the really post second war world war era the dominant way of thinking about uncertainty was in probabilistic terms and that's been a trend that has been growing for some time and is completely dominant in the um it's epitomized by Milton Friedman saying in 1950s that um there was a distinction made by Frank Knight who was in a sense his predecessor as doyen of the uh Chicago School of Economics Frank Knight made this distinction between risk and uncertainty and Friedman said in a rather definitive way he said almost everything he said uh Fried uh, Knight made this distinction between risk which could be described probabilistically and uncertainty which could not uh Friedman said I shall not refer further to this distinction because I do not believe it is valid we may treat people as if they attach probabilities to every conceivable event that's where we are in this maybe i should say a little bit about how we got there uh one of the strange things about probability is how late in the history of human thought people started talking about probabilities uh the greeks gambled 
and there were people in ancient Greece who were pretty good at mathematics. But there was no concept of probability. And there's no concept of probability as far as one can work it out because um, there was no such thing as chance. There wasn't the will of the gods, which you might not know, but it wasn't random. And things that seemed to us rather odd, like consulting the entrails or the oracle of Delphi, the explanation was that these things got you closer to the will of the gods. Uh, perhaps they did. Uh, uh, but it was in the 17th century that a couple of French mathematicians, uh, Pascal and Fermat, well, they were extraordinary polymaths, the two of them, were actually devised the beginnings of a theory of probability. And the story is that they devised it in response to a, a French gambler called the Chevalier de Meur, who uh, wanted uh, uh, to know... Uh, how he should place his odds and his bets in the gambling saloon. And probability emerged from that. And people then discovered it could be extended in a variety of different ways. First of all, to mortality and life tables. Uh, that was the beginnings of insurance, actually. And then to a variety of other insurable events. But it was really in the late 19th century the people set out the foundations of what we all know as, now know as classical statistics, in which this kind of thinking was applied very much more widely. Now, that takes us to the early 1920s and to two great economists, Keynes and Frank Knight. They were incredibly different people. You know, Keynes was an archetypal English upper-middle-class intellectual, Knight had been a farm boy in Iowa before he went to Chicago and, um, and, and wrote all this stuff. But in 1921, they both published, they each published books. Knight, Risk, Uncertainty and Profit, Keynes, A Treatise on Probability. And what they were doing was criticizing the attempt to take the use of probabilistic reasoning too far. And both of them made a distinction emphasized very clearly by Knight, was a distinction between risk and uncertainty. Risk was what you could describe probabilistically. Uncertainty was what you could not. And Knight in particular, although Keynes also took the point, emphasized that it was that kind of uncertainty that was the source of innovation, entrepreneurship, profit, the driver of what happened in a market economy. But actually, there was then a battle which Knight and Keynes lost. Maybe, Mervyn, you'd like to take up the story at that point. So, after the Second World War, economics wanted, econo economics wanted to adopt mathematical methods. Very sensible, very reasonable thing to want to do. And I think it's best captured by uh, a conversation that was reported very late in the career of Paul Samuelson, perhaps arguably the two of the most significant economists of the second half of the 20th century were Paul Samuelson and Bob Solow, both at MIT, offices next door to each other. And they created this new department of economics at MIT, which has become in many ways thought of as the best department in the world after LSE. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul Samuelson reports that one day, Bob Solo bounced into his office and said, Paul, he said, don't you think that once you start to think about probabilities, 
you really can't think about anything else? <laughs> and Samuelson said, yes. And this became very seductive. Seductive because the mathematics was not that difficult, but it appeared to offer tremendous opportunities to find solutions to well-defined problems. And so they went down that path. Now, one of the interesting things that took place at the same time was the development of formal axioms to justify the view that people would attach probabilities, subjective probabilities, to all conceivable events. And this became the foundation for the view that all rational individuals would be maximizing their expected utility. Many of them, this was a very significant moment in the development of economic thought, and there was a conference in Paris in the early 1950s organized by Maurice Allais, the French economist who later won the Nobel Prize, and he invited a number of people over to debate these questions. Uh, and many of these people later on won Nobel Prizes in economics. And what Allais did, and this be has become known subsequently as the Allais paradox, was to say, well, let me give you some choices. And he gave them choices between different uh, lotteries. So, you know, which would you prefer, this lottery or that lottery? And he just was asking their preferences. It was, was not a puzzle. There was no right or wrong answer. What do you prefer? And so these great people told Maurice Allais what they preferred. And then what Allais demonstrated was that their own revealed preferences violated the basic axioms which they were all using to justify optimizing behavior. <coughs> now, to my mind, one of the most intriguing consequences of this is that the Americans went back from Paris to the US to think about this, and one man in particular was absolutely crucial, and that was a man called Jimmy Savage, who wrote the Foundations of Statistics, the most pivotal volume in the development of statistics in the 1950s. And he went back to Chicago, and he worried, he worried a lot, that his own revealed preferences violated the axioms on which all his work was based. And he thought very hard for six months, and then decided that he'd made a mistake in giving his preferences in Paris. <laughs> because instead of saying, well, obviously the axioms are wrong, he said, these axioms are too much fun to play with, I must have made a mistake in explaining my preferences. And the interesting thing is that Samuelson, who initially was dubious about the axioms, later said it was Jimmy Savage who persuaded him that this was the right way to think about the problem. And once these people had said, you know, this is the way we should think about subjective probabilities, which implies that everyone is going to be maximizing their expected utility, well, later people said, well, these great men have been quite happy to accept these axioms, so we will too, and that's the first part of lecture one, and we won't spend any more time on it. Let's go to the applications. Let's see what happens when you maximize expected utility. And a lot of very interesting results have been derived in this framework. But the intriguing thing is that in Savage's own book, he is very clear and very rigorous to, when he explains the circumstances in which the axioms actually apply and in which it's sensible to assume that people optimize. And he demonstrates that this only applies in a very narrow set of circumstances. His own expression was a small world. 
and that in the larger world in which we actually live, to believe that these axioms hold would be, in his own words, completely ridiculous. But actually, everyone's forgotten that and gone on assuming that it's not ridiculous. Now, it's fair to say that by pretending that people maximize expected utility, you can use that technique to solve a variety of puzzles which have answers. And in that way, you can derive some very useful insights into how the world works. And one of the things we stress in the book is that economic models of the kind that we are familiar with and use should be seen as parables. They offer insights. What they are not is a quantitative description of how the world works. I mean, John has a very interesting example to do with the model which um, George Akerlof proposed about how, you know, we, we, we tend to think early on that price moves to adjust supply and demand uh, to, to come together, and there's a price which equates supply and demand. But actually, when information is distributed unequally among people in the market, it's not quite so simple. And John will give the example. Now, many of you will know Akerlof's lemons model, in which a lemon is the term used to describe a used car that was made in General Motors factory on a Friday and didn't work terribly well. And, of course, the owner of a lemon would know it was a lemon, but the prospective purchaser of the, the car would not know it was. And uh, Akerlof described the dynamics of a market like that and why that market would be inefficient and might not exist at all. I told that story uh, a few years ago uh, to a large general audience, and uh, at question time, someone got up from the back of the audience and said, um, I'm Secretary General of the Retail Motor Federation, <laughs> uh, which represents used car dealers in the United Kingdom. And I have to say that this story is a monstrous libel on my honest and hard-working members. The two problems with that, one is that you may not be as convinced as he was that used car dealers are the, uh, the epitome of honesty and uh, full disclosure. But also it misses the point that uh, the Akerlof model is not actually about used cars. It's not actually about any particular market. It's a general proposition about markets that gives you insights into the way in which markets may not work well when there is imperfect information. And it doesn't matter, actually, what the facts are about the used car market to the utility of that particular model. There are even more extreme examples of that. You'll all know the, the prisoner's dilemma which is a ludicrous story that was devised by, um, by Tucker, actually, to explain some elementary game theory to some non-economists and to make the point that the sheriff's strategy in the prisoner's dilemma case violates various principles of the U.S. criminal justice system is, again, to miss the point of the prisoner's dilemma. There's an important point here which is that we should think of economic models as being parables in the way I've just described the Akerlof model rather than as true statements about the world. Okay, so no, sorry. May, may, may I, 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 you were both schooled, though, in what you might call a very traditional model by the time you were learning economics. 
every, I think the Allais paradox might have been a footnote in most of the textbooks by then. So what point, can you give an example of a point at which you said you thought about writing the book when you were, when you met as, towards the end of your governorship, but at what point do you both have an example of a point in your professional careers where you began, began to become deeply dissatisfied with the framework you've been taught as... So it was, it was the financial crisis and the consequences of it. So after the immediate you know, day-to-day issues of writing checks for £36 billion to Royal Bank of Scotland, um, <laughs> you sort of, once you've done that, you go home and say, well, what shall I read tonight? And, uh, <laughs> and I went back and I read a lot of the material from the 1930s, including Keynes. And it became very clear that, that Keynes's view was that his understanding of how you could get significant depressions in that case, but actually this argument also holds for significant booms, was radical uncertainty. That is, events that you couldn't easily attach a probability to, but would be influenced by sentiment. Your beliefs about how likely things were could be changed by sentiment. And I remember, I mean, perhaps the most vivid example of the dangers of what we call in the book bogus quantification was that before the crisis, a lot of very clever and very uh, unbiased people from around the world in Basel, from the banking, uh, central banking community and the regulatory community, devised rules which were designed to tell banks how much equity capital they had to issue so that if they made losses in a crisis, they, the losses would fall on shareholders and not on uh, creditors, including depositors. And they did this by calculating specific risk weights for each of the different kinds of assets that appeared on a bank's balance sheet. Now, a new regime with these new updated risk weights was introduced in Britain in January 2007. A few months later, a bank called Northern Rock had an annual general meeting. And it said, well, we've been looking at this new regime and we've calculated the risk weights and we are the best capitalised bank in Britain. (laughs) And as a result, we propose in the next few years to return capital to shareholders because we don't need it. Weeks later, only weeks later, they literally ran out of money. Now, the point about this is that the very precise numerical risk weights were absolutely useless in the crisis because the people who'd worked on it said, well, how can we calculate the numbers here And they looked backwards over the previous 30 years from before the crisis. And they said, well, it seems to us that mortgages are the safest sort of lending that banks can engage in. And we don't bother to look at the funding side of the balance sheet, the liability side. We just look at the asset side. And this framework turned out to be pretty useless. And a very simple model of leverage gave you a better prediction of what which banks would get into serious trouble. So... What, what seemed very clear was that uh, these risk weights didn't help. So then people said, so what's the optimal capital ratio for a bank? Now, at this point, I, I was very clear in my mind that this was not a helpful question because how much capital do you need to have to convince the market that it's safe to lend to you? Well, we know the answer to that because before the crisis, the answer was hardly any. <laughs> And after the crisis, the answer was a hell of a lot. And so where should you be somewhere in that interregnum? It wasn't clear. But what we knew was the banks didn't have enough 
at the time. So it, when you reflect on all this, what you come to appreciate is it doesn't make sense to pretend that you can go away and calculate precise numbers for this. What you need to have, and these are principles we talk about right through the book, is a system of regulation of banks, which is, focuses on robustness and resilience. You don't know where the next crisis will come from. You don't know which assets will turn out to be risky or illiquid. What you do know is that banks will need to have issued equity capital so they can absorb some losses. And there will be times when they will need to turn to the central bank for cash. And you need to have a framework in which the central bank can lend, which has been put in place beforehand so that taxpayers don't think that banks are being bailed out, it's more of an insurance policy, and that the central bank can examine the assets which banks will bring to the central bank as collateral. When we lent all that money to Royal Bank of Scotland in October 2008, uh, I remember we were, I got a phone call early in the morning from Royal Bank of Scotland saying, we're not going to make it to the end of the day. Now, nobody in RBS had been saying for the previous year. So what's the numerical probability that we're going to end up in this situation? You couldn't easily have anticipated it at all. But it happened. And then I asked Andrew Bailey, the new governor, if he would arrange for the collateral to be delivered from RBS to the Bank of England. And later that afternoon, I said to Andrew, I said, so we got collateral, okay. He said, that's, we got collateral. I said, what is it? He said, it's, it's mortgages. <laughs> I said, whose mortgages? We had no idea. And that was not a resilient framework within which to, in which you can say to the people, depositors, bankers, everyone else, we have a framework, a system by which we can cope with temporary shortfalls of cash to the banking system. So that, for me, was a very potent example of why the use of probabilities was completely irrelevant and why the belief that you could solve the problem by finding out from past data probabilities was actually positively damaging because the world is non-stationary, to use that sort of technical phrase. So what's curious about that, which is rather different than other takes I've heard on this, is a, a lot of modern economics would say it's about studying human psychology, it's behavioral economics, but you're, you're pushing us in a very different direction. I don't, are you critical, John, of, um, yeah. of developments in behavioral economics? Are, um, are they taking us uh, in the wrong direction? We are, and we might come to that in a moment, but you asked for yes, all the light bulb moments. Yeah. And there were two or three, really, for me. One was when in the early 90s, the Lloyd's insurance market in, the, in London had got into rather serious trouble. And I, I became involved in advising on the process of reform and reconstruction there. And uh, uh, there was a question of what had actually been gone wrong in that market. And that took one to the question of why do people trade risks with each other? And they trade risks with each other for two kinds of reasons. One, which is the typical insurance policy, is you're passing the risk over to someone who's better able to bear it than you are. And the other is that you're dumping risk on somebody who understands less about it than you do. <laughs> and the essence of what had gone wrong in Lloyd's was that there had been a shift from insurance and risk trading, which essentially had the first characteristic, to insurance and risk trading, which essentially had the second characteristic. And I remember a moment when someone was explaining to me how much business... Uh, 
adenoids had expanded in the course of the 1980s. And I asked the question, um, so how much of this business actually came through the door from, as it were, real customers, rather than being generated with, within the market itself? And what was um, fascinating was that not, not only could people not easily give me the answer, but it seemed the idea of asking this question at all was a novel one. And that was a really good preparation for me for understanding what was going on in the run-up to the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, what some people, people were, the story people, people were telling about what was going on was that you were diversifying risk by constructing endlessly more complicated varieties of securitized products. What was actually happening was people who didn't know very much about what they were doing were dumping stuff on people who knew even less about what they were doing. And in both Lloyd's and, uh, and the securitization market, that's something that blew up in the end. There was another light bulb moment I mentioned earlier when I started realizing that firms didn't actually maximize profits. They were actually much more complicated political entities run by people who actually had to balance a whole variety of, um, of competing considerations. And that the idea that people can't optimize because it's too hard um, stayed, with me for, uh, stayed with me ever since. And I wrote a first book about that about 10 years ago called Obliquity. And the idea for that title and one of the motivations from the book came from talking to the man who actually created more shareholder value than anyone else in the history of British, uh, British industry. His name was James Black, and he was a, a chemist who went to work for ICI after the Second World War, and he discovered ICI, actually, after the war, decided the future of chemistry lay in pharmaceuticals, chemistry and business lay in pharmaceuticals. They constructed a pharmaceutical business which lost money for 20 years, and then Black and his team at ICI discovered beta blockers, which were the first effective drugs against hypertension, and that became a hugely profitable drug for ICI and was the foundation of um, their pharmaceutical business, which became the main driver of profits for the business. But Black actually left ICI soon after that. Uh, and what he did was he moved to another British company called Smith Klein, and there he discovered a drug called Tagamet, which was the first drug to be effective against ulcer, stomach ulcers. Both these drugs, incidentally, have very attractive commercial properties that people of hypertension or ulcers take them every day for the rest of their lives. These are, these are the kinds of drugs that pharmaceutical companies really want to discover. But I asked Black why he had left ICI and gone and joined SmithKline. I should say that after Tagamet was discovered, another British company, Glaxo, uh, refocused their research program and discovered what was essentially a Me Too, but slightly better substitute for Tagamet, called Zantac, which is a drug you will still see in, in, far, or in most pharmacies today. And that became the best-selling drug in the whole history of world pharmaceuticals. So with these three innovations, this man created tens of billions of pounds of, of shareholder volume. But I asked him um, why he left ICI, 
And he said the trouble was that ICI, I wanted to go on, he said, discovering new drugs. ICI wanted me to put, put me on road shows uh, uh, selling, uh, selling beta blockers rather like we're on Roadshow selling books at the moment. <laughs> we'll pass that by for the moment. Uh, and I wanted, he said, to go on inventing new drugs. And then he shook his head, says, his head and said, um, yes, I used to tell my colleagues at ICI that if they wanted to make profits, there were many easier ways of doing it than pharmaceutical research. <laughs> And he shook his head and said, how wrong could I have been? <laughs> I call it the principle of obliquity. And I've given the name of the principle of obliquity to the idea that very often you don't maximize things by actually setting out to optimize. Uh, greatest illustration of that was Bear Stearns, one of the investment banks that went bust early in 2008 which famously had a sign above its trading floor that said, we make nothing but money. <laughs> and the business that made nothing but money in the end turned out not to make very much of that. And I had very similar experiences when I was at the bank going around on industrial visits all over the UK, going to lots of companies. And what became evident after a while was it was quite easy to work out which were good companies and which were bad companies. The bank companies are the people who would start off by telling you about their balance sheets, their profit and loss. The good companies were people who wanted to talk about their product. And they were passionate about their product. And they made money as a byproduct of being passionate. Uh, there was a company in Stoke which made plates, one of the few companies that survived and did very well. So well, in fact, that they, they, they sold out eventually at a very high price. But they were so passionate about their plates that they wouldn't allow anyone to buy plates from them unless they turned up in the factory to be shown how the plates were made and why they were the best and to get new ideas about what they could do to improve it. And I went to this factory. It was a really run-down Victorian factory in Stoke-on-Trent, um, a place which you know, used to be full of fog because of the smoke from the factories in the potteries. Not There weren't that many potteries still going so the smoke had cleared a bit and you could see how ugly Stoke sadly really was with very little municipal architecture but the pride in this factory was extraordinary now when I went in run down Victorian factory I thought okay at minus one then I met the board every member of the board had the same name it was a family business okay and they'd been running it since the 19th century minus two I thought then they showed me the plates and the sales figures and they had come up they had invented something which enabled the, the new process which enabled plates and the markings on the plates to survive industrial dishwashers immensely successful very big market but they were they were passionate about making plates and every company i went to that was successful had this property that john described as obliquity they didn't make money by setting out each morning to make money. They did it as a byproduct of trying to make what they would see as the best possible product. But there wasn't a quantitative definition of that. They were always striving to find new ways to improve and to innovate. And there wasn't a clear path. They would have new ideas that they hadn't realized before. They were a very good example of radical uncertainty. It's funny you mentioned that, Merpin, because I went to a factory in Stoke once it didn't make plates, it made urinals and toilet bowls. 
Uh, I wouldn't say they were passionate about that, <laughs> the rhinos, uh, but they were, they were quite interested in the product. They were certainly more interested in the product than the financial side of the business. But let's go back, right. I think, um, because we, we've had, this has all been a bit of a distraction. Uh, we, we'd, we'd sort of got ourselves to the 50s and 60s, um, and we were describing that Paris dinner party and that was really the beginning of behavioral economics. Uh, but it was a different behavioral economics to the kind of behavioral economics we have now. Because Allais, he wrote an article in French about uh, the dinner party. He published it in Econometrica. I think you told me, Tim, that you, there was no way you could get an article in French. Officially not allowed uh, anymore. I think uh, now. <laughs> uh, and it was quite, uh, as it were, Euro-America-phobic um, because he edited a critique of the postulates of the American school, people like Friedman, Savage, and so on. Uh, his cause was taken up, interestingly, by an American called Daniel Ellsberg, who actually became much more famous subsequently for being the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers about the, the Vietnam War. But these were the beginnings of behavioral economics. But these behavioral economists were quite clear that what they were criticizing uh, was not people's decisions. They were criticizing economists' models of rationality. Uh, but that got switched round. And in the modern world, if the world doesn't correspond to um, the economist's model, the fault lies not with the model, but with the world. And that's been essentially the foundation of behavioral economics, that people don't do what they're supposed to do in our models uh, because they're stupid, and they ought to be banged on the head until they perform in accordance with the axioms of rationality. We want to raise the question of whether that might be a problem with the axioms of rationality, and we particularly want to do that in the context of behavior under uncertainty, because the, these ways of thinking about uncertainty have, we believe, proved seriously misleading. I mean, what is so interesting is that behavioral economics did start by asking questions about, so how do people actually behave? And what's been transformed now is that the, the field basically says, we know how they should behave, maximize expected utility, that's just taken for granted. So let's come up with some rather silly examples and questions that we can put to people, which, you know, John describes this as the gotcha kind of research, which is you do experiments and you put questions to students and others, and if they give an answer which appears to be inconsistent with expected utility maximization, then you describe them as being biased. And in the great tradition of modern economics, graduate students have gone out and carried out so many studies that we've now identified you know, over 100 different kind of biases that humans exhibit. Now, at this point, you might think someone would ask the question, so if humans are so completely hopeless and characterized by all these biases, how come we are the dominant species on Earth? And the answer, I think, is relatively simple, which is the ability to do mathematical or probabilistic reasoning perfectly, which computers do better than humans. But the ability to do that is clearly not the most important criterion for survival of the human race. 
that dealing with ambiguity, complexity, mysteries, that is, problems that don't have necessarily a solution, it's not a problem, there isn't a necessarily a solution to it. It's a, it's a problem, an adaptability of the human race to new and unexpected surroundings is our comparative advantage. And it's also the case, and we put stress on this in the book, that we do things together. So we make decisions together, we communicate, uh, and that form of communicating between people is a very important part of decision making. And it's a world apart from the traditional model of rational individuals who maximize their own expected utility without interacting with others. And people talk in terms of narratives. They don't maximize functions. They talk in terms of narratives. But the most important thing to understand about a narrative, and again we put stress on this in the book, is that unlike people like Bob Schiller, who produced a book last year about narratives, he regards narratives, stories, as an example of human failure. That is, narratives give rise to fashions and fads and to swings in the stock market, which he regards as irrational because individuals are deviating from maximizing expected utility. But in the world, as John said right at the very beginning, people do not have the information to carry out these optimizing solutions. And so it's not surprising that you find volatility of asset prices, things changing unexpectedly, the world isn't stationary. But if you're going to cope with this, you develop a narrative, and then what you do is to bring other people in to challenge that narrative. So Tim, you were on the Monetary Policy Committee. You will remember that the whole point of that was not to ask the best and most qualified individual to decide on interest rates but to have a narrative among the group that would evolve over time. And the role of the nine members of the Monetary Policy Committee was to challenge the prevailing narrative and challenge each other in order to develop the argument. And that is something you know, distinctive and characteristic uh, of the human race, which contributes to the success that we've had in coping with problems that cannot be described simply in probabilistic terms. So let's go back to that Friedman statement that we're eliding this difference between distinction between risk and uncertainty because people attach probabilities to every conceivable event. Why don't people attach probabilities to every conceivable event? They don't attach probabilities to every conceivable event because, as Keynes said 100 years ago, there is simply no scientific basis for determining these probabilities. Now, let me take what is an extreme example of this, which is some of you may have come across the work of Nate Silver, who is uh, an American political pundit who has achieved a great deal of justified fame for pr correctly predicting the results of a number of US elections. Uh, but uh, Silver is an obsessive Bayesian. He believes that everything can be treated probabilistically uh, and that the Bayesian process of updating probabilities in the light of um, uh, new information is really the only way of rationally thinking about uncertainty. <coughs> so Silver poses for himself the question, what was the probability on September 10th, 2001, that the following day there would be a, an attack on the Twin Towers in New York by... Um, uh, from airplanes. 
Uh, well, he gives an answer to that. He gives an answer to almost anything. And the answer is one in 12,500. <laughs> Where does that figure come from? Well, I can explain the sum which, uh, which Silver did. And the sum which Silver did says, before September 2000, before the Twin Towers, there were two incidents after the Second World War in which aircraft collided with buildings in Manhattan. Then there are 25,000 days between the end of the Second World War uh, and September 11. Uh, so you divide 25,000 by two, and you get this answer to one in 12,500. Now, the point of developing that example is not just, first of all, to say it's ridiculous, and I don't think I need to spend very much time persuading people in this audience that it's ridiculous. But what would make it not ridiculous? Well, to make it not ridiculous, imagine for yourself a model in which there's a fixed stock of skyscrapers in Manhattan, and there are lots of aircraft randomly flying around Manhattan, and occasionally, but not very often, they fly into these buildings. Uh, in that case, you would have what physicists would regard as a stationary or ergodic, ergodic process, and you could infer a probability distribution from the number of accidents that there actually had actually been experienced. And the longer the time period you took, this is the nature of ergodicity, the better your estimates of probabilities uh, will be. But you can easily see now what the issue is that most of the processes that we have in business and finance and economics are not actually like that. They are not stationary processes in this sense. And we give the example at the, early in the book of a remarkably effective piece of prediction, which was NASA launching a spaceship messenger into space in order to put a probe around Mercury. And it took seven years for the trajectory of that, uh, of that rocket to reach Mercury. And it did that because the craft they launched circled the Earth first, it circled Venus twice after that, and then circulated Mercury several times, and eventually they were able to nudge it into position orbiting around Mercury. And the position of that spacecraft, seven years later, was almost exactly what they'd anticipated when they launched it seven years earlier. But why could they do that? The three conditions that were fulfilled that enabled them to do that. The first is we understand the motion of the planets, and we've known that now for several hundred years. The underlying equations are well known. Secondly, they, they remain the same. They're stationary in this sense. And thirdly, they're not affected by our beliefs and responses to them. Venus was orbiting in its was orbiting according to certain equations long before anyone discovered these equations and it didn't change its orbit in the least uh, after people discovered what they were. You can see if you think about that how different the problems we have in business and economics really are to these and that's why we have to approach it in different ways. But if, we were, if it were the case that Friedman was right, uh, if it were the case that we attach probabilities to every conceivable event. You can see how important that was to the economics that has come out of Chicago since the mid-1950s, 
and how it has been dependent on that kind of belief. Without that assumption that people could attach probabilities to every conceivable event, you could not have the finance theory that has been developed in business schools and finance departments around the world over the last 50 years. And the kind of contrast I'm describing <coughs> makes clear how difficult and implausible the models of rational expectations and the like that have been the foundation of quite a lot of theoretical macroeconomics since then. That were the, uh, it's a profoundly influential doctrine and we think this is a profoundly mistaken doctrine. So before, before in a moment we'll, we'll open the question, but I, w I want to now sort of do, do enter into a bit of a forward-looking mode. I, uh, what, I think we've got to the nub of your critique, if you like, of the conventional way of doing things. Um, but perhaps you could give uh, an example or two, perhaps one each, of either how you envisage economics has to change to embrace your ideas, so in, in, I mean, in terms of the teaching we do or the research we do, uh, and, and, and also how policy needs to change. I think you've already given an example, Mervyn, from your experience in the crisis, but perhaps just bring out a, a couple more examples of, of how, what, what are the changes you feel are, are necessary, because what you're describing is very far from the kinds of courses that we teach in economics. And I think it, deep down what we're suggesting is that economics needs to become a bit closer to some of the other social sciences. So economics used to be a subject that was defined by the problems that it was trying to understand. And in recent years, it's become a subject defined by the methods and techniques which it uses. These are very different animals. And our belief is that we need to go back to a world in which economics is seen as a practical subject designed to help us understand more about how the world works. In that sense, it's closer to engineering, where what matters is what works, and you may discover the science behind what works later on, but you don't wait until that point. And it isn't like physics. Whereas a lot of modern economics has been constructed to look a bit like physics. There are people who claim the real business cycle school of economics is very adamant that they are very like physicists now. We think this is a mistake. Uh, we talk about that in, in the book. But it's focusing more on problems. And I think the thing that we were taken by was that the question you should ask in practice when you confront a problem is, what is going on here? And think about what is going on. And I'll come up with a, an example in, in, in a minute of why that was so important. And I think what we want to do in terms of the study of economics is to suggest that people start by thinking about problems. This actually is often done well in first-year courses, but the further down the road you go as an economist, the further away you go from the problems of everyday life and the more you become uh, in, trapped in this world of technique. But the example I want to use is one that comes from the spread of AIDS when AIDS uh, first appeared. And the World Health Organization wanted to know how quickly AIDS might spread in southern Africa. So they built very complex models of the demograph demographics of each of the countries in southern Africa and then linked them together. Very complex model. And they turned the handle to get a number out. And one of the parameters in their models was 
the average number of sexual contacts per person per year in each of the countries. And they turned the handle and got a result out. And they invited, fortunately, Bob May, Professor Robert May, very distinguished, initial, initially a physicist and then a mathematician and biologist, who was our chief scientist some while ago, now Lord May. And he, he looked at this model, and he didn't want to get bogged down in the entrails of a big black box. But he asked himself the question, so what is going on here? You know, why is it that AIDS is spreading? And he thought carefully about that and realized that this parameter, the average number of contacts per year, was fundamental because it was concealing a really important judgment that they had not thought to ask about, which is, if the average number of contacts is, say, 100 a year, it matters enormously as to whether it's 100 contacts with the same person or 100 contacts with 100 different people, the latter generating rapid spread of AIDS. And they had not bothered to think about that in the model. And I think that an awful lot of what I saw at Bank of England was that people worked very hard at their bit of the model, very serious, genuine work, but they, very few people were prepared to ask the question, so what's going on here? Which are the parameters that really matter? And if we think this one matters, let's do some research into what's going on. And so I think deep down, economics can learn a lot from the other social sciences, and it needs to be a little more humble about thinking that economics is superior because it uses more advanced mathematical techniques and the techniques are what define a subject as opposed to the problems that they're tackling. There are two parts to your question, really, Tim. One is, what should economists do differently? Uh, and I think Mervyn has given a large part of the answer to that, that economics is a subject that ought to be defined by the problems it solves, not by the methods it uses. And there's a striking contrast there between Marshall writing at the end of the 19th century and saying economics is the study of man in the ordinary business of life, and Gary Becker saying the method of economics is the relentless and consistent application of rational optimization by maximizing agents. Uh, that's the change from uh, being a subject to being a method. And at the same time as Marshall wrote that at the end of the 19th century, the American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce distinguished three styles of scientific reasoning. There was the deductive, in which you have a set of premises and you derive logical conclusions from them. And that's typically the method of physics. There's the inductive, in which the world generates you a great deal of data, and on the basis of that data, you form theories and you test these against, um, against uh, the data and against alternative theories. And finally, there's the abductive, in which you're dealing with essentially unique situations, and you're asking this question, what is going on here? And what has happened in economics is that we've emphasized the deductive style of reasoning at the expense, to a considerable extent, of the inductive, and almost completely at the expense of the abductive. But if we go back to Mervyn's discussion of the financial crisis, we can see that he went to ask that question, what is going on here about a unique situation? 
That isn't to say that you couldn't learn about that situation from analogies of what had happened in the past. I gave an illustration of that when I said it was very instructive for me to have this Lloyd's experience in thinking about what was happening in, in financial markets around about that time. You can uh, reason in that kind of way, but in the end, you're looking for what lawyers call the technique of inference to best explanation. You're trying to find the single best explanation of the facts that are before you. And we as economists need to do all of these things. The second part of your question, I think, Tim, is what should people in business or people in everyday life learn from this about how they should handle risk and uncertainty? Now, we're emphasizing the distinction between risk and uncertainty again. Uh, risk, in ordinary language, is something bad. You don't hear people saying, there's a risk I might win the national lottery. <laughs> you don't even hear people saying, there's a risk I might not win the national lottery, because people don't realistically expect to win the lottery. Uh, what they're doing is they have a reference narrative about their, their lives, and risk is something that detracts from that. There was a light bulb moment, actually, that brought that home to me. And I went to a meeting at the Treasury between some Treasury economists and a group of government defense contractors. And the Treasury economists had all done good finance courses, no doubt some of them here, uh, explained that uh, since risks in uh, defense contracts were idiosyncratic, they were completely diversifiable, and therefore it was not necessary to pay a cost of capital more than marginally above the government bond rate in rewarding people for these kind of activities. You can imagine that by that time the business people on the other side of the table were looking at the economists and wondering what kind of planet these people had actually come from. Uh, what, what the business people meant by risk was that the things would go wrong relative to the scenario on which everyone was planning. That's the way in which ordinary people talk about risk. That's what people in business mean by risk. And that's very different from uncertainty. Uncertainty, um, uncertainty arises from imperfect information, and uncertainty can be either good or bad. Uh, uncertainty occurs when you meet a new friend, you go out to a new restaurant, you go on holiday to a new place. All of these are things uh, are, that are uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know whether you're going to like the person. You don't know whether you're going to enjoy it. But it's that kind of uncertainty that actually makes life interesting and life worth worthwhile. Many of you will see, have seen the film Groundhog Day, in which Bill Murray is condemned to live the same day over and over again. And it's actually very boring living the same day over and over again. In the end, Murray tries to commit suicide, but he can't do that because that isn't in the script that's been, been written for him. Uncertainty, provided you have a secure reference narrative, is, uh, is something that is, you should welcome. And when Knight wrote about risk and uncertainty 100 years ago, uh, what he said was that uncertainty it was uncertainty that created innovation, entrepreneurship, and profit. And that's an insight that, unfortunately, we've lost. 
And it's rather paradoxical, actually, that it was Chicago that should have lost it for us. Okay, so we have a little time for some uh, uh, audience questions. I'm going to take them in groups of three. Uh, just remind you to announce who you are before you ask a question. Uh, I'm seeing the first one up there on the right, and I'm seeing, yeah, okay, I'm... I'm uh, and please keep them brief so we can have the maximum number of questions. Hi, um, Arunav Das, member of public. Uh, thank you for your time this evening. Two questions. One is very specific to the banking sector. Uh, under the radical uncertainty, uh, what does the stress testing mean, the results of that? Could we still read it the same way? Or are we still not confident about them because the previous model of value at risk and risk weighted did not work? So what's the guarantee this model will work either? The second question is uh, more wider. Uh, in terms of does data science provide us with additional insights and unlock some of the uncertainty looking at the past decision making. Um, the second one is about uh, data science. Uh, do you think uh, it might provide us with uh, additional insight looking back at some of the decisions and data points um, and remove some of these uncertainties that we may not have seen because we didn't look at the data long enough or hard enough in the past? Thank okay, you. so I saw a question up there. I don't know who has the roving mic. Hi, hello, uh, my name is Alexis. I'm a politics student here at LSE. And my question is, I mean, you've spoken a lot about, I think, especially monetary policy. And my question is, do you think one could argue that over the last maybe century, or especially in the last years, um, the degree of uncertainty <coughs> and difficulty to predict the future has increased in some sense due to, I don't know, globalization or some other factors, and that therefore it's necessary to kind of reframe our ideas of, of, of rationality and, and our abilities to, to predict the future, or do you think there's some other more kind of general error that has been there since, I don't know, Keynes, and that you can't really argue that complexity has somehow increased, in, especially in the policy-making area? Thank you. Okay, I've got space for one more. Let's uh, take one down the front here. Yeah, Will Page, Chief Economist at Spotify, fellow here at LSE. And the question is to John, Mervyn mentioned non-stationary earlier, and that really caught me. One of my big issues with economics is we overdose on mathematical techniques because we need to produce outcomes that are stable or present a future that's got the word steady state in it. Yet every time I read Heyman Minsky, I'm always reminded that stability in itself is destabilizing. Now, I haven't heard his name mentioned this evening. I just want to know, does he feature in your book or how does he feature in your thinking? Okay, so I don't know who, who out of John and Mervyn want to address I think those. I two are really from Mervyn. Yeah, not first or the last, maybe. But so stress testing. One of the things I I'm a little concerned about with stress testing is that you start by defining a stress, a sort of set of events in the future that you define, and then you ask the question: Okay, so how would each individual bank or institution? respond in that stress, in that situation? How much money might it lose? And then you try and devise a regime under which it doesn't lose too much. The, the difficulty with that is that there is absolutely no way of knowing whether that stress is going to be the event that brings down the banking system. So what you really need to do is to have a number of, of stresses. You want to do the sensitivity analysis. There's no point thinking that a bank that looks very safe under one particular stress but is very vulnerable to a lot of other stresses is safe when you need the sensitivity. You know, is, is, is the bank robust with respect to a number of different stresses as opposed to very safe for one stress, vulnerable to another? So I think that the, the way in which the 
these have evolved so far has been to define a stress, and I think that's, that's a risky thing to do, to rely on that one. The, the question about Minsky and non-stationarity. So I think non-stationarity is fundamental. Uh, the whole basis of statistical inference is that you are dealing with a stationary series. And that's why, you know, when I started econometrics, it was in the bad old days when we would regress levels against levels. And we were very impressed by the fact we had very high R squareds, you know, which you get when you regress levels on levels. So we then learned you had to take first differences or growth rates, and then you had a stationary series and you could carry out your econometrics. Now, interestingly, after the financial crisis, David Hendry and Graham Meisen, <clears throat> two of the most distinguished econometricians in the country, formerly LSE, uh, wrote a piece saying, well, the reason why forecasting models didn't work in predicting the crisis was because the world was non-stationary. And they had a lot of technical explanation of it. Well, it, in a sense, it's obvious. Things happened that we didn't really expect to happen and were very different from the past. So the past data were not a good guide to what was going on. I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about Hyman Minsky for the following reason. In a sense, you gave away the, the reason I'm a little bit concerned. He says stability will generate instability. Well, in some circumstances it might, in others it might not. And I don't think you need to have a model. He, he's almost got a deterministic model in which you start off in a situation, you go through a cycle, and it's inevitable that you end up having these swings. I don't think the world is like that. I think that's just too simple. The world of radical uncertainty makes it really matters, and it undermines a lot of forecast because the world's non-stationary. I don't think you really need to go much further than that. May, I mean, the, the, there are insights in what Minsky talks about, which are helpful, but I don't like the deterministic sequence in which he defines a cycle. Uh, I mean, that's right. We're, the, it's common now to deal with non-stationarity, to acknowledge non-stationarity, and then say, but the trouble is there are shifts and shocks. So there are, there are periods in which you have some kind of stationary process, and then there's a discontinuity, and it changes to another one. Uh, the, the real trouble with that explanation is that it relegates everything that is interesting to the shifts and the shocks, which you don't actually talk about. So you have explanations of the 2008 financial crisis in terms of an exogenous change in, um, in, in the productivity of intangible capital, for example. Well, I don't think I've learned anything by being told that. If I could measure intangible capital, if I could see the determinants of the productivity of intangible capital, and so this might be start to be some sort of, of explanation. Uh, but it isn't. Uh, and then we end up with models which are good at predicting the future so long as it isn't very different from the present uh, and uh, cannot deal with any of the real difficult problems of prediction. Okay, so we'll do another round of, of questions. So I'm seeing down in the middle there uh, to start with, and I'm, I'm seeing now quite a lot of hands. So pass through to there. Thank you. <clears throat> Hello, uh, my name's Henrietta Lynch. Uh, my question is, uh, given the radical uncertainty, uncertainty surrounding climate change, what narrative do we devise or to uh, finance um, mitigation, especially aimed at COP in Glasgow? 
Okay, so right up to, let's go to the back now. Um, right up on the top left, please. Um, hello, uh, I'm an economics LSE student. Um, so I wanted to know uh, that you said that when we are doing behavioral bias, we can't just say that the person ought to do this. It's something in the model that we are missing out. So, like, does this mean that we should not be taking a normative stance on things and rather be, like, and change the biases that we were seeing in behavioral otherwise? They were all a part of misspecification in the models, rather. Good evening to the panel. Uh, my name is Mohammed, and I'm from Bahrain. I, I study at LSE Ideas. Uh, my question is, how reliable can the forward guidance aspect of the monetary policy be in the face of radical uncertainty? Okay, so... Um, can I have a go at... So we'll start with climate change. John can do forward guidance, because I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a great fan of it, but um, <laughs> for the reasons you give. So when we... I mean, John and I have, have talked about this quite a lot, and I think we... We think climate change is a very good example of radical uncertainty. We don't know enough. We know there's something about it, but we don't know enough. Now, unfortunately, much of the public debate has been driven either to one extreme where people say we know exactly what's going to happen and therefore we must do this, or the other extreme where people say, well, we don't know very much, so it can't exist. And we think this is a very bad position to start from. The fact that we do know something about climate change, but not everything, is no reason at all for inaction. This is the most fundamental point. You need to do something about it, but you need to recognize that we don't know enough about it to have a precise tailor-made answer. So what's, what's the solution? Solution is to go back to the principles, we talk about this in the book, of robustness and resilience and keeping options open. So that what we need to do is to find ways of thinking about, well, given all the ways in which climate change could come about, given all the possible solutions and possible things we could do to mitigate, let's have a variety of responses to it. Let's not put all our eggs in one basket. And let's think of ways of keeping our options open in terms of new technology, alternative energy supplies. So we certainly wouldn't suggest that the fact that there's radical uncertainty means that, oh, you must throw up your hands and do nothing. The opposite is the case. You have to make a decision, and you should worry about the fact that things go very badly wrong. John talked about risk as something bad happening re relative to a reference narrative. The reference narrative of the human species is that we carry on living happily on Earth. There is a serious downside risk to that from climate change. Therefore, it's something that you must take seriously and take action to deal with. But I think we worry about the fact that there are a lot of people out there who seem to know exactly what the answer is and what we should do. And I think that is potentially dangerous. We need to recognize the limits to our knowledge and devise solutions and, and, and answers to this which don't depend on the belief that we know precisely what is going on. There are a number of words that we would really like people to take away thinking about. Robustness and resilience have come up several times, and these are really central. In, in, once we acknowledge that our knowledge of the, pre, the, the future and even the present is likely to be limited, what we have to do 
is seek strategies, whether it's in business or public policy or our own personal lives, that are robust and resilient to things that will happen in future that we cannot expect to predict. Mervyn has also just emphasised the importance of preserving options in all of that, or indeed buying options. And a lot of buying options is a lot of what we should be doing in relation to the climate change issue uh, that has been raised, giving ourselves options to do a range of things in future, most of all uh, by conducting research and development in a variety of areas in which nothing like enough, in my view, is being, being spent at the moment. But also, along with robust and resilient, engineers build robust and resilient systems. They have to when they're building things like nuclear power stations or complex petrochemical plants. And they apply two further kind of concepts to that. One is modularity, which is you build the system in such a way that if part of it fails, that doesn't bring down the system taken as a whole. Uh, so you limit the degrees of interdependence within your system. And the second is redundancy. That is, you build things to greater tolerances than you think you're going to need. Now, these things seem very obvious when they apply to complex engineering systems, and everyone agrees with them. But when we talk about them in the context of business and finance, finance has evolved in the last 50 years precisely in directions to remove modularity and to reduce redundancy. Uh, we've uh, <coughs> removed the siloing of two different kinds of financial services activities which help preserve stability for quite a long time. Uh, Mervyn described the extreme example of alleged redundancy uh, that Northern Rock supposedly had more capital than it needed and was actually prepared to return some of it to shareholders shortly before it went bust. Uh, that's not redundancy. In all our business and financial systems, we've regarded efficiency, uh, the, the, the obligation of efficiency, as requiring us to drive out redundancy and modularity. And that, of course, leaves us with systems, business systems and financial systems that are much less robust and resilient than they could be, or indeed than ones we used to have. Okay, three more, and then we'll, we'll have to go. I see one there, I see one here. So one in the middle there, one down here. Hi, I'm George Cobley. I'm a master's student in political economy. I guess I was wondering, as someone who's been quite interested in the literature regarding radical uncertainty, what jumped out to me first about your book was the title featuring Unknowable. And I was wondering whether this means you take the view that there's some kind of ontological radical uncertainty which isn't removable by incredibly superior artificial intelligence of the sort. Okay, there's, there was one down, desk down in the second row here, please. Um, I'm David and I study here at the LSE. Um, I was wondering if over the course of your academic and professional careers, if you have taken economics as a discipline more or less with a grain of salt uh, in the light of the problems in dealing with uncertainty that is posed to it. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm a graduate student in politics. Davidson stated that regarding the term of agordicity, that the future is merely the statistical shadow of the past. So incorporating non-agordicity in 
the thought of modern economics, do you think that we should ostracize the assumptions of neoclassical economics? Okay, so, I don't know which one, John, do you want to go just... Uh, well, no, I don't think we should ostracize the assumptions of neoclassical economics. Um, I think what we have to learn is that there, uh, we will never have models that are true descriptions of the world. We need a variety of different models of the world. And if you approach economics in the way Mirb and I, and I have been describing it, it, the judgment and skill of the experienced economists is to know what models are appropriate to particular problems. I'm quite interested in the question about AI. There's a, an issue we raise in the book and we could have talked more about tonight, which is the distinction between mysteries and puzzles. Puzzles are things that are well-defined problems that have objectively correct solutions that may be difficult to work out, but competent observers will agree what they are when they are worked out. And I described NASA sending a spaceship to Mercury, which is a classic example of that kind of problem. Mysteries, on the other hand, are what you have where the problems are not particularly well-defined and where it's not obvious afterwards what necessarily what the answer was. Some of you may be familiar with Philip Tetlock's Good Judgment Project, in which what he does, and he's done this now for over 20 years, is to examine the quality of predictions about various events. And he's created a group of super forecasters. You may recently have read about super forecasters when Downing Street hired one and then decided they could do without one or could do without that particular one at any rate. A super forecaster is someone who performs well on Tetlock's metrics. But if you look at the questions that Tetlock has left open at the, the moment, they're questions like, will the Donbass region of the Ukraine be accorded special legal status in the first quarter of 2020? Or will there be more than one quarter of 2020 in which the U.S. civilian unemployment rate exceeds 4%? These are well-defined questions, and we will know in due course what the answer to them is. But they're not really the questions to which people want to know the answers. What they're really asking is what's going to happen in Ukraine? Or are they asking, is the United States moving into recession? And these are less well-defined questions. And even after events have evolved, people will still argue about what the answers were. So artificial intelligence is actually very good at, um, at solving puzzles. It's not very good at dealing with mysteries, these ill-defined questions which don't have clear-cut objective answers. And uh, I, I suppose there is some reductionist le level at which everything we do uh, has a, some kind of biological, chemical explanation. But I think pursuing science in that kind of way is extremely unlikely to lead to anything that is, is very interesting. So as Mervyn said earlier, I think, if being able to do lots of calculations very quickly was a really important life skill, we would have learnt 
we will be much better at doing complicated calculations quickly than we actually are. We're much better at solving mysteries. So one final point. When the time comes for you to leave LSE, you may feel, oh, the world is a terribly uncertain place. This is awful. And we want you to think more deeply about this. What John described earlier was that you should think carefully about you know, a reference narrative of how your life might evolve and think about the downside risks to that. Risks are bad things relative to that reference <coughs> narrative. And you should adopt strategies to avoid risk. But as far as uncertainty is concerned, you should welcome it in large part because the fact that when you leave LSE, you may not know who your life partner will turn out to be. You may not know what job you'll be doing 10, 20, 30 years from now. You may not know even what country you'll be living in 20 years from now. These are wonderful things because if I could tell you today what the various possibilities were and could tell you the probabilities attached to them, then you'd be just as depressed as Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much. So it just remains for me... Final word. Thank you so much to Mervyn and John. Uh, the book is available uh, to be signed uh, as, you, as you leave. There's a reception to which you are all extremely welcome. Uh, and just thank uh, Mervyn and John one, once more for this very uh, enlightening evening that we've, uh, we've had. With you.